Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS and professor of Old Testament, and I'm joined by our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Tommy Keene, and our professor of systematic theology, Gray Sutanto. And we are here to discuss, as part of this series on the Ten Commandments, we're getting now to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, a passage that is uh, and a commandment that's well known to all of us. And yet, you know, the implications of it might be, you know, might be kind of surprising. So what we want to do is talk through What's this commandment about, and what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for us to take the name of the Lord our God in vain? Is this just yelling out the name of God in an expletive form, or is it about more than that? Okay, so let's go ahead and start off with uh, with Dr. Tommy Keene. What's the oh, value? Really? We're going to start off. <laughs> I'm just looking around. Who am I going to call on? I mean, okay, the first thing that entered my head, and it happens all the time when I when I think about the third commandment, is Sean Connery slapping Harrison Ford across the face in the um, third Indiana Jones movie when he uses uh, w- w- when he uses the the Lord's name in vain. Lord's name in vain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it struck me as a kid, like of all of the things to get mad at Indiana Jones about like of all of the things to kind of lose your cool over this seemed, you know, they're in, they're in the Nazi Reich, right? <laughs> like, this seemed really um, over the top from Sean, from Sean Connor. From, and and uh, at least for Dr. Jones, the elder, this commandment still had yeah. relevance. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I guess I, I don't, this, there's, there's no substantive comment here, but to, but to try to <laughs> redeem the value of this observation, it strikes me as kind of like, why is this such a big deal? Like with, and and I, you know, with the first two commandments, I can look at, okay, look, here in Israel, people broke this commandment. Like they had an idol under their bed. They worship God with strange fire, you know, and then, you know, there's serious consequences. And I don't, I don't see that pattern here. So what, like, what is being said and why is it such a big deal that it makes the top 10 list? Yeah, the top 10 and, and the one right after worshiping properly, right? I mean, this is in this is in the, the the big the big stuff part of the Ten Commandments too, that's not kind of down in individual, you know, behaviors so so much, but like our disposition towards God, you know, the kind of establishment of the theology out of which the ethical system is gonna come. Yeah, it's a good question. And one, I mean, one thing that's interesting that came to mind as I was thinking about it is the fact that, you know, in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Pentateuch. And in some of the prophets, for that matter, you know, when when God talks about putting his presence amongst his people, which is like the big deal, one of the big parts of the Mosaic Covenant that he's going to sanctuary with them, that he's going to go with them and provide the means by which he will be with the people, which if you remember from Moses, is such a big deal that the conquest isn't worth it if God doesn't go with them. Okay, so this whole idea of sanctuary, presence, tabernacling is described by Moses as the place where God puts his name. 
right? So Jerusalem will be, and this is before Jerusalem is chosen, but uh, Moses in, in you know, Deuteronomy, the Lord talks about how he's going to, you're going to gather and worship in the place where I put my name. And that putting of the name is the putting of the divine presence. And that's why, you know, I think part of this, we read this and we think little kids shouldn't say, or Indiana Jones for that matter, shouldn't say the Lord's name as a, as an expletive, right? Yelling it out without thinking about what the implications of or what it means. It's not just about that. It's actually about kind of honoring the existence and the presence of God. And I think that's also how it ties up with what came before. Don't worship idols. Oh, and by the way, also, you know, don't take for granted the presence and the existence of God in this life. It's not something that you joke about. It's not something that you throw off like you would talking about a creature. But when you're speaking of the Lord, recognize his character and his identity and his reality. Yeah, and and from a New Testament perspective, I kind of think, okay, where do we see examples of sins like this, you know, where we bundle it up? And a couple of examples that come to mind are things like the prophets saying, uh, the prophets or the the miracle workers who come to Jesus in Matthew 7, and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in thy name? And Jesus says, be gone from me, I never knew you. Or Simon Magus, who you know, uh, seems to be converted to some extent for, for a time. There's some narrative truncation there, perhaps, in, in Luke and uh, in Acts, and we're not sure how long this is going on. But then he's like, okay, how now do I get the, like that second level, that Holy Spirit, so I can do my magic better? And Peter rebukes him, Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe these are examples of where, where you're using the name of God to manipulate, to uh, exercise power, to reinforce one's own idols. And so right. even, even though it's actually, what's actually going on is idolatry and just standard, you know, Greco-Roman paganism with, with Simon, he's now attached the name of God to it. Um, and the response is actually a, a, a judgment, you know, Paul, I know, and Peter, I know, but you I've never heard of. Why? Because you're actually using the name of God in a way that's manipulative, ineffective, and without knowledge. God's mm-hmm. presence isn't there. Um, and so you're misusing, misappropriating the name for your own I- idolatrous purposes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the the Hebrew word here for in vain, I think growing up in a Christian home where you did get in trouble, if you said this, if you said the Lord's name as an expletive, I, I, I always thought that's what in vain means is when you just say it and you don't mean it or something. And you can see how in English in vain might mean that or in a worthless way. But it is interesting that elsewhere, I mean, the same term is used to as a euphemism for or a synonym with idols. And you know, it might be getting at again, sort of an extension of the worship principle. You know, where you're you're using the Lord's name in some way that is deficient or denigrate. You know, in terms of His worship. You know, and I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, particularly you know nowadays, it's not just you know saying Jesus Christ's name when you get upset or are surprised, but it's yeah oppressing people or abusing people in the name of Jesus. I can think of places where Christian terminology. And Christian, you know, belief systems uh, are used to oppress people, you know, that that's a using of the Lord's name in vain. Or if it's used to kind of affirm a cultural norm, 
sort of a nominal Christianity, you know, I can imagine like a God and country type Christianity, uh, that that can be a using of the Lord's name in vain, even though it sounds quite, you know, quite righteous, perhaps, you know, in our, you know, to, to our cultural mindset. Yeah, it's it's a misappropriation of of God's honor for our own self-promotion, for oppression, for keeping power in the hands of those who have it. It's it's odd, you know, I've been reading a lot in Revelation right now, kind of trying to revamp some material for class, and I don't think John or Paul, for that matter, can envision a society in which Christianity uh, can be used for self-promotion, but we currently live in one, and suddenly maybe this third commandment, which, you know, you, you claim to be a Christian, you claim to worship uh, Jesus Christ in, in ancient Rome, and suddenly you are you are anathema to the rest of society but uh, that's not that's still not the case in modern day america we can use christianity we can use religion for purposes antithetical to christ and is that then a taking of his honor and using it for our own ends which is to misappropriate the name yeah and i think at the root of what you both are saying here is kind of a, a domestication of the divine name. It's a misappropriation of it. It's a reducing God for our own purposes and agendas. And I think it's also a misunderstanding of God's name. I can't stop thinking about the relevance of the disclosure of the divine name in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, that, that God is the great I am. And how does he depict the revelation of the divine name as the fire in the unburning bush, the fire that is self-contained, the fire that is burning independently of the bush and yet is with the bush. So that that the fire continues to be with uh, the bush itself, but doesn't need the bush to continue to be what it is. And so God doesn't need his people, but chooses to condescend to be in covenant relationship with his people. And so anytime you misappropriate God's name is when you think that God is in a reciprocal relationship with you, that God needs you as much as you need him. Or if you use God for your own ends, when God is for his own glory and that he cannot be subordinated to your own uh, particular agendas. And What's interesting to me as well, uh, it always shocks me when I read this in the Westminster Larger Catechism, on the section on what this command prohibits, it prohibits the misapplication and misuse of the word of God. Uh, so, so any kind of misinterpretation that, that drives a particular wrong end that isn't for the glory of God is a misuse of the divine name. And that's an incredibly hard commandments to follow then, right? It's a very easy command to break. I think we break it all the time. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> misapplying the word of God, um, using it to establish our own, that that's going to go at, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Speechless at how I'm we spe- perhaps I mean, break, break it, it every day. It, it, every it cuts moment. to the quick of of that's. I guess where I'm thinking is like that cuts to the quick of our own communities. Like that's not just something that's other people's problem. People that didn't you know that didn't grow up learning not to use words certain ways. That's that goes to the heart of much of the dialogue right now in evangelical circles and should call should call us again to repentance and and to. Th- to thinking through how are we using the word of God and, and for what ends. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you want to be convinced of your own wretchedness in sin, just read again, the Westminster larger catechism on what 
each commandment uh, prohibits and commands to do uh, positively. Here's what it actually, so I just pull it out. Question 113, what are the sins forbidden in the third commandment? And I'm just reading a section of it. Misinterpreting, not just misapplying, but misinterpreting, misapplying, or anyway perverting the word or any part of it to profane, just curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings, or the maintaining of false doctrines, right? So, you know, false doctrine is actually being involved here. You know, sometimes people hear that, oh, as long as you believe in Jesus, as long as you love him, what good is doctrine? But actually implicit in not taking the name of, of, of your God in vain is this valorization of proper understanding of that name and also a proper use of that name and has a proper application of that name. So it's, it's, it's definitely something, especially as professors and especially as pastors, as teachers of God's word need to be really careful about because we are warned here in this commandment. I don't know if you were subtexting me there, Gray. We just got out of James 3 and in Hebrews to Rev, and that passage is always very sobering to me. And not, you know, it opens, it's, I don't think it's actually about this, but it opens with not many of you should be teachers. Yeah. But then the logic or the, uh, the reasons ascribed to that are not that you're bad at it, <laughs> not that you don't have good theology. Rather, it's because the tongue is so dangerous, because the words that we use are so dangerous, especially when we teach, that we are, we, we are in danger of setting the forest ablaze uh, in all of the words that come out of our mouth. And yeah. given how powerful the tongue is, it's just not wise for many people to seek this, this job, which is a sobering, sobering thing for teachers and podcasters. Yeah, I took a deep dive into just cults this past weekend. What would make, what would make a cult so attractive to its cult followers? You know, what what would make its followers want to conform and comply to a cult leader? And normally, it's always the use of eloquence in the cult leader's words that this person is able to draw the attention of a crowd and is able to persuade, even if maybe their arguments, in retrospect, like if you put them on a piece of paper and you're reading them, it, it might not make sense, but they're able to use words in such a way where you're persuaded by the way they use it. And I think it goes to show that, that James was right there, that the use of your tongue really has deep implications because it can lead a lot of people to a different course of life. Yeah, the, the sophists had a point, didn't they? You know, that you can, you can convince people of the truth of a thing by articulating it in an eloquent manner. I I'm, you know, I think about that when I was, we were watching, a, I think we were talking about this earlier, Gray, we were watching a documentary about a, a, a cult and the leader of it, who, if you kind of looked at him, you'd be like, I, I'm surprised anyone would follow this person, much less give him millions of their dollars. But if you listen to him talk, what he'd often do is have this kind of smattering of religious sounding insights, and then a metaphor that was maybe a particularly kind of vivid metaphor or vivid analogy. And you could just see people like being convinced, even though he hadn't actually made a convincing argument for his position, he had just given an interesting metaphor that illustrated this thing that he was positive. Right. And, you know, you see that today, I feel like people are so, you know, often just convinced by a turn of phrase or a, uh, you know, a, a, an aptly put analogy or something like that, or a good meme, a good use of a meme or something. And that becomes a convincing argument 
unto itself for a particular thing. And yeah, I mean, once again, I think as, as professors, I think about that for us, particularly those of us who are professors of God's word, there's a way that you can teach so that your students will rise up and call you blessed. And yet it's not a good way to teach, right? Yeah. It's not based in scripture and yet you'll be celebrated and you'll be given yeah. high, high academic positions and opportunities to speak on the circuit. And yet you may or may not actually be taking the Lord's name in vain. And there's something about the Lord's name, especially when it is used eloquently, right? to people who are made in God's image, that it is incredibly powerful. So that you might have a completely wrong agenda, and it's a false agenda, it's a morally egregious agenda, but if you attach the name of God to it, you might actually guilt enough people to follow you on that wrong agenda just because they think that they're serving God. There's something about us, again, being made in God's image that we want to follow a higher authority, a divine being, such that when we use the name of God, it adds that layer of authority on us and it also creates culpability if we use it wrongly because it could be used easily for manipulative ends as you have uh, already mentioned yeah it's got it's got immediate persuasive power regardless of the actual logic attached right if you don't follow what i say you're actually trespassing upon the divine which is an incredible thing to to, to ponder and again reemphasizes the responsibility we have as bible teachers i was thinking um you know, there's this interesting passage in First Peter. It's a hotly debated passage because Peter mentions um, there. It's the First uh, Peter three seven where Peter talks about you know, li- live with your wives in an under- husbands live with your wives wives in an understanding way as as with the weaker vessel. And some in Christian traditions have interpreted that to be emotionally weaker or mentally weaker, and all of that's all of that's bogus. It's it's simply the uh, you know I think physically referring to the physicality of things. But um, that controversy aside, one of the really interesting things that Peter does there is he says, live with them in a loving, understanding way, lest your prayers be hindered. And there's this, you know, how does that work? I thought God listened to every prayer. Like God, God hears all prayers, right? That's what we tell our Sunday school children, right? That, That God hears every prayer that's uttered. And he does, he hears, he hears our prayers, but God is such that he knows when he's being manipulated, when he's being used, when he's being, when his name and calling upon his name is being put to, uh, to further a system of oppression and, and these kinds of things. And so it, it, there's an interesting promise here, I think, as well, that God, even though we might like look around and see the name of God being used in, in manners that further oppression that further sinfulness, um, that manipulate the system, et cetera, et cetera. Nevertheless, we know that our God is not fooled. He is not like the gods of the Greeks who just respond to flattery because it's flattery, but rather has this divine plan and does not actually listen to prayers, at least in the way that we want, want him to, the prayers of, uh, of those who would behave in this way. Yeah, and the dangerous thing is that people start to identify God with that manipulative end. You know, or people start to identify God with that oppression because they've been, they're not able to, and we are not able to disentangle the wrong use of the name and the name yeah. itself. Yeah. Or, or, or if not God, then religion, at least. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think so much of the kind of narrative on the, the deconstruction of your evangelical heritage, for example, in, in so many circles, especially in the States today, 
what I want to say in response at the times is, of course, you want to listen. And oftentimes it comes from trauma and hurt and so on. But oftentimes you can spot that what they're rejecting is not Christianity per se, but it's a Christianity of that particular area or that particular community, right? Their version of their use of the name of God, which isn't exactly going to be identical with the church Catholics use of the name of God or the Bible's use of the name of God, but they've so identified the name with that particular community that they can't disentangle the two from it, which is why, again, church history is so important to understand in the name of God, because it, it decontextualizes where you are and, and locates you within this broader history. It, it causes you to be able to zoom out and see that, hey, maybe my community uses the name hasn't been the way in which church history has used the name. And maybe I got to rethink and disentangle the way in which the name of God really is and how it's used in my own community, which avoids that kind of deconstruction path, I think. So what you're saying is this is both it's it's understandable when people are you know doing what they might call deconstruction. It's understandable that they're yeah rightly affected by the use of God's name in an inappropriate way or in a way that's abusive or oppressive. And yet at the same time, it behooves us to be you know to be more aware of how the the name of God has been used throughout history. That that you know, church history didn't start last week, right? And that this has been around for a long time and it goes beyond your immediate community. Um, that's a power, I mean, that's a powerful lesson. That's a hard thing to teach nowadays too with the kind of echo chambers that people are operating in uh, on all sides of this discussion, you know, but being aware of a broader community and holding your leaders, leaders accountable accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, w- one other perhaps note to add on this is at the end of the Westminster Larger Catechism's list of prohibitions that, that is entailed by this commandment is that you take the name of the name, you take the name of God in vain when you're ashamed of it, when you're ashamed of the name of God, when you uh, fail to uh, stand courageously on it, when it might not benefit you. Right. And I think that's another sober reminder for, for Christians, especially in a day and age where we might be very tempted to say, hey, I'm not going to be associated with Christ, right? We want to think that we're not like Peter, uh, that we would not betray the Lord Jesus Christ and, and just kind of shirk away and cowardice. But, but oftentimes we are. And in fact, that is one instantiation of misusing the name of God because by your actions, you have performed this conviction or the implicit conviction that the name of God is not worth it, that the name of God is not honorable. The name of God is not something that is glorious in and of itself. And we fall into the temptation all the time. Uh, it's interesting that the Lord's Prayer, there's so many parallels between the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. You know, you've got the kind of at the broadest level, you've got the two tables of the law. We're supposed to pray for the things of God first, and then we pray after praying for the things of God, praying for God and his kingdom. We pray, you know, uh, for, forgive us our debts, give us this day our daily bread, those kinds of things. So there's this kind of broad parallel. It's interesting, too, that the the in that first petition, Lord, hallowed be thy name, we are, we've kind of got bundled up those first three commandments. Uh, God as the one true God, we've got worship God in the right way, and then all of that then attached to the name. So I think, Scott, we were looking for kind of links, how did these three go together? And Jesus has that link for us right there in that first petition of the Lord's Prayer, where they, these all belong in close association with one another as we worship god rightly as we honor him above all other 
objects worthy of honor, we are keeping his name holy. We are, um, I, I, I like the way Jesus puts it, you know, it's an imperative there in, in the petition. God, make your name holy, which is an interesting little puzzle because it is holy. How can it be more holy? Well, he calls us in these first three commandments to be agents of sanctifying the name, of honoring the name, of making it more and more glorious, not only in our own hearts and minds and lives, but in the, the surrounding culture in which we speak and work. Yeah, and, I, and, and in the Lord's Prayer, it's interesting how it's all, I like how you connected those to the Ten Commandments. And in the Lord's Prayer, it's, it's articulated in this kind of, you know, uniquely kingdom aspect too, like our Father, you know, this is our royal father, lest we forget, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done, right? And that's that's the reason why his name ought to be hallowed, is fatherly, kingly role in our life, and therefore it shouldn't be diminished. And, you know, there's things I kind of, you know, I can imagine a parent saying, well, you know, in today's culture, we don't really hold anything sacred, do we? You know, there's nothing sacred in these, today's culture. And yet I think there kind of is. I think there are things that we hold as sacred, things that we won't even make light of because we consider it such an important, uh, such an important issue, you know, that, you know, you, you don't even joke about it because it's so significant to who we are as a community and who we are as, as people. And, you know, as I think about that, just the fact that that shifted, that it may not have been the sacred things of old, right. That we hold up, that, that we kind of venerate and keep, you know, um, you know, hallow to use, to use the, the King James translation <laughs> of the Lord's prayer, you know, it doesn't mean that there aren't things that we hallow and, the teach what the Ten Commandments are reminding us of, and Christ is reminding us of, is that God's name is one of those things. It's one of those things that is in this. It, it, it maybe maybe not just one of those things, but it's the preeminent thing that is to be set apart as holy, to be set apart as sacred, and you don't just treat it like you treat anything else, because He is, after all, our God who exists and who is present amongst us. He's our King. And therefore, his name ought to be hallowed. And it's not a thing to be joked about or taken lightly. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this discussion. It's always a pleasure for me. Thank you, brothers, for uh, being on this call. Thanks to Timo Sazo, our editor and producer, who, uh, who makes us sound like eloquent cult leaders uh, when we're on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we look forward to continuing this conversation over the course of this fall and uh, until next week take care